Eminent Harvard psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Dr. Alan Hobson, has been described as the anti-Freud. He's written a book called 13 Dreams Freud Never Had, The New Mind Science. From his work, we can learn much about psychoanalysis, dreaming, as well as the latest in neuroscience. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Hobson. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you, Leslie. Well, this book really cracks me up, to be honest with you. Not many neuroscientists would have the audacity to write about 13 of their own dreams. How did that come about? I know my own dreams better than I know anybody else's dreams, and I was also stealing a leaf from Freud. I mean, in Freud's interpretation of dreams, there are some 40 dream fragments, and none of them is really very long. They're all his. It's fair game. I mean... I keep a dream journal, and I'm a very careful self-observer. I've been doing this, you know, ever since I was 40. I'm now 74. So I have about 600 really beautiful dream reports, and I have confidence in them because I recorded them. And I also, you know, I know my history. I don't know my patient's histories as well as I know my own history. So I was interested in being able to discuss the historical aspects of the dream material as well as to suggest to the reader that a formal analysis is likely to be rewarding. I could interpret the dreams a la Freud and tell him what I thought was going on in terms of my own theory. The fact of the matter is that you've got to get Freud out of your head, and it's a big deal. It's very hard. If you go to fifth grade classes in Medford, they're all Freudians already. Freud is, is sort of in our culture, so you know maybe it's even a fool's errand to try to root this stuff out. But it's a little bit like believing that the Earth is flat when it's really round. I think it's very important to both advocate a new approach and also warn people about the danger of holding on to the old one. But let me tell you, it's a tenacious hold. And Freudianism is extremely popular because it's easy to understand. We would all like to believe, I think especially Americans like to believe, you know, that every, everyone could be remade, just change the environmental circumstances and everyone would be different. I don't think that's true. I think that environment is very powerful, and I think you know you should do your best to make it more healthy for people. But a lot of the problems that people have are not going to be solved that way, nor are they going to get new genes probably either. A lot of it has to do with sort of making the best of a bad job. And, of course, Freud was pretty clear about that. I mean, I don't think Freud himself ever believed that his theory would be applied to the treatment of schizophrenia and a manic depressive disease, but but I was trained in a hospital that did that. So, you know, part of the reason why I feel so strongly about it is because I myself was so radically misled by very intelligent people, professors of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. I thought there must be something wrong with me. I don't get it. I don't see this construct as being all that explanatory, explanatory of things that I really wanted to understand, like hallucinations and delusions. Why were people having them? Well, you know, to be told that it was because they were suffering from unrepressed infantile wishes that were of an oral nature is a little silly. I mean, it just didn't seem to me that that was very likely to be the case. And I don't believe it is the case. I think that doing those things requires a lot more than having infantile wishes that are of an oral nature. Would you be willing to share one of your dreams from the book with us? Well, sure. One of the things that's very interesting is that you go back to your own dream journal and you see this dream report that's in your own handwriting. You know it must be yours. You can't remember ever having had it. 
I guess I just read one the other day, The Lobster Dream, which which I liked a lot. I don't know why I reread that, but I reread it. So Well, that's a good one. Let's hear about that one. I'm a great lobster lover. I love a good feed. And in The Lobster Dream, I'm at a scientific meeting, and I go to the dining room, and I'm just astonished. This one, I'm at a smorgasbord-like table, and they're, they're serving wonderful lobster. And the lobster is huge. It's as big as a person, and it's been sliced across. And I realize in my dream that it's a little bit like a brain, and I'm about to pick it up with chopsticks, and I notice all the gorgeous embellishment on the surface of the lobster. Now, you could have a field day with that in terms of free association and you know what it might mean about, is that lobster a symbol of something? And I have fun doing that in the in the book, and I those explanations are really not very satisfying. It's much more likely that among the many images that were presented to my activated brain comes the lobster. Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I'm saying that, you know, a dream lobster is more likely to be a lobster than almost anything else. And uh, I start to play with that in terms of my own theory, which is called activation synthesis. The brain gets activated. You find yourself at a scientific meeting, because I often am at scientific meetings, and the food is usually bad. I convert that into something, you know, rather more pleasant and inviting. And before I know it, I'm, I'm really having a ball with this lobster. And I, I don't think there's anything more or less to it than that. I don't think that, you know, the lobster means this or that in terms of my unconscious motivations. You know, my unconscious motivations are, are not something that I run away from, by the way. I mean, I think that to know that I'm lustful and greedy and all the rest of that stuff is probably, I should thank Freud for that. I mean, he's made me feel that that's quite, that's quite normal and quite natural. But to dream about a lobster is certainly not proof, to me at least, that I have a lot of unresolved unconscious wishes. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Alan Hobson. We are discussing his pioneering career in dream science through what else? His dreams. Dr. Hobson, tell us a little bit more about your activation synthesis hypothesis. Well, the idea is quite simple, Leslie. First of all, dreaming occurs when the brain is activated in sleep, and of course the brain is never completely deactivated, so there are quantitative degrees of dreaming. They're most intense in REM sleep when the brain is highly activated and when it's demodulated and has removed the norepinephrine and serotonin influences, become quite cholinergic, auto-self-stimulating itself in the visual domain. This is what the activation part of it is about. It's really a description of the neurophysiology. And you're going to dream and you're going to have visual dreams, of course, if that's the case. The synthesis part is part that people have more trouble with, and that's what we're talking about. You know, with respect to the lobster dream, why did I select that plot? I can't tell you. I mean, I follow Douglas Hofstadter, Gertel Escher and Bach. He says, you know, that dreams are just multiform. You can't predict what a dream is going to be like. If you really knew what was going on, you'd be able to predict the content. But uh, it's unpredictable. And why my brain synthesized the lobster, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I can't really give you an adequate account of that, but stay tuned. I mean, we may find that out. We probably won't find that out if we think that the lobster is a substitute for something else. And we get 10 different analysts, and they all think that the lobster represents something quite different. So uh, I guess the synthesis part is the weak part of the theory. Now, it's getting stronger because we're now able to look more carefully at the human brain and see what's going on. So 
This is an example of how we map back and forth from the uh, psychological domain to the physiological domain. Activation synthesis is an integrative theory, and it says, okay, look, the mental content should somehow be a reflection of what's going on at the level of brain physiology. And so you start hunting around, and you find out that, sure enough, you know, the visual system is selectively activated, the emotional system is selectively activated, and the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which most of us assume is associated with executive ego functions in the cognitive uh, language, is deactivated. So, uh, again, you know, you begin to understand why I don't say to myself, for example, this lobster is too big to be real. I know that after the fact. I mean, the lobster's huge. People don't decorate lobsters in the way that was done in my dream. So, so you know, that's to be attributed to uh, creative processes that I can't yet describe, but I'm going to look for them, and I'm going to find out more about the physiological side of synthesis just by studying the brain more carefully. And I don't know whether that'll happen in my lifetime or not. I don't really care. But I think that's the way to go. And when we're able to understand how the brain is able to create these extraordinary images, I think we'll be in a much better position to appreciate how lucky we are to have one. We can do this. And it doesn't really help to consider it to be symbolic transformation. You've still got to account for why it happened. I just think that the the simplest explanations at this point are probably the ones to go for. Why keep a dream journal? Well, I keep a dream journal because I always felt from the very start that the psychological side was just as important as the physiological side. And I wanted to explain, after all, a subjective experience, dreaming. So the question was, what was dreaming really like? And who was who am I better able to study that on than myself? If I keep detailed notes, I actually get better at it. My recall goes up and everything else happens that's very nice. And now I have an incredible collection of materials. I've stopped doing laboratory work altogether. I'm just working on dreams now. And as I explained to you earlier, I'm interested in why we can't be logical. Why don't I see that this lobster is simply impossible? Doesn't It never occurs to me that the lobster is impossible. Well, this minute I wake up, it's pretty clear I've been dreaming that I've had this impossible experience. So uh, why keep a dream journal? Well, in order to have data. I also like the dreams. I mean, I enjoy them. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Alan Hobson, who is a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. We've been discussing the fascinating land of dream science. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. Thank you for listening.